Good evening and welcome to episode 106 of Mystery Murder and Mayhem. The kids are officially out of school, so you know what? I have a little bit more time on my hand. So I'm going to get some episodes taken care of. So moving on, I know that wasn't much of an intro, was it? But anyway, moving on into tonight's episode. So June the 13th of this year will mark the 46th year since three little girls were murdered while they were away from home at camp at Camp Scott in Oklahoma. And it would be a crime that would go unsolved for nearly as many years. There's a few twists and turns in this story, so let's get started. Now, the camp I mentioned, Camp Scott, it sat on 410 acres of densely forested land, complete with a creek running through it, and it had been operated by the Girl Scouts since 1928, and each unit there at the camp was named after Native American tribes, and they consisted of several tents for campers and a tent for their counselor. Now, each tent sat up on this wooden platform, and inside of the tent, there was four cots for the campers to sleep on. Well, until that night in 1977, it just seemed like a very peaceful camping destination that was safe for the children who came there to camp. Now, one of those camp counselors was a young woman named Michelle Hoffman. Hoffman herself had camped there many times through her childhood, starting when she was just nine years old. And she recalled that in her early years there, the camp did seem a little scary at night because it was so dark. But y'all, they were in the middle of the forest, so that's kind of, you know, it should be expected. But during daylight hours, Camp Scott was a beautiful place to be. And there were tons of activities for the campers to take part in, which included hiking and swimming. So it sounded like a really fun place to be. Now, Hoffman had arrived at the Girl Scout headquarters in Tulsa on June the 12th, and she recalled lots of excited little girls waiting to board buses that would take them to the campsite. Three of those little girls was 8-year-old Lori Farmer, 9-year-old Michelle Goose, and 10-year-old Denise Milner. And when Hoffman first met Denise, Denise wasn't wanting to get on that bus and go camping because she just knew she'd be homesick. So Hoffman tried to give her a little encouragement and offered to let her sit with her on the bus, you know, on the way to their campsite. Now, Denise was a little unwilling at first, but soon she was on the bus singing songs with the rest of the girls, having a really good time. Well, once they were there, you know, Denise was introduced to her tent mates, which was Lori Farmer and Michelle Goose. And before bedtime, Hoffman came back to their tent to tell them good night, but they were already asleep. Now, remember how I mentioned that night, or that night time at, at the camp was super dark? Well, that first night, it seemed even more dark, because there was a thunderstorm brewing. The next morning, another counselor at the camp, Carla Wilhite, she started making her way down the trail to the showers around 6 a.m., and as she made her way, she made a startling and horrifying discovery. 
the bodies of all three girls, Lori, Michelle, and Denise, were laying at the foot of a tree. Now, at first, she only saw Denise because Lori's and Michelle's bodies were inside their zipped sleeping bags, and Denise was laying on top of hers. When she realized that Denise was deceased, she turned back and ran back up the trail, but she soon returned with a camp director and nurse. Now, later, autopsies would reveal that Lori and Michelle, and this is Michelle Goose, not Hoffman, um, their autopsies would reveal that they had been killed by blunt force trauma to their heads. Denise had been beaten and strangled with a ligature, and all three of the girls had been sexually assaulted. Investigators were able to figure out that the attacks had taken place inside the tent and then the bodies had been moved to the base of the tree. The camp director immediately sent all the other campers home on buses to their parents to shield them from, you know, what had taken place and, you know, keep them out of the way of the investigation. Well, soon news of the triple homicide was spreading across the country as investigators searched intensely through the woods for clues. They interviewed person after person and they followed up on each and every lead that they received. But it wouldn't be long before investigators had a suspect. On June 23rd, they came across the name Gene Leroy Hart, who was 33 years old and he had been convicted of burglary and sexual assault. Now, he had been in prison for those crimes, but he escaped. And he had been on the run for four years. Being an escapee was the least of his worries, though, because now he was facing three murder charges. Now, soon after investigators realized who their suspect was, district attorneys announced that investigators had searched a nearby cave and they found items that had possibly been stolen from the camp. And they claimed that some of these items connected them you know, they put the connection between those items and, and Hart. Well, Hart was no stranger to the woods, and he was what would be considered an expert woodsman. And on top of that, he had a lot of family members that lived in that area, and one of those family mothers was his own mother. Well, from there, the largest manhunt in Oklahoma history was underway. Now, it would be 10 months before they would ever find Hart. On April the 6th, 1978, acting on a tip from the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, they surrounded a remote home that was 50 miles from the camp in Cookson Hills. And it was there in that rickety old shack that they found Hart. Soon, he was charged with the murders of Lori Farmer, Michelle Goose, and Denise Milner. 21 months after the girls had been murdered, Hart would go on trial for capital murder. Now, even though investigators were positive that they had their man, there were some who felt that Hart just wasn't guilty of those murders. And one of those persons was the judge himself. It was the judge that was presiding over the trial, Judge William J. Whistler. Now, as a matter of fact, Hart told Judge Whistler the first time that they met that he didn't kill those girls. And Judge Whistler believed him. Members of the community were also convinced, you know, that the investigators had it wrong. They had the wrong person. 
And they raised money to pay for his defense attorney by selling plates from like a, this, um, they called it a hog fry. And they sold t-shirts. And then the Cherokee Tribal Council even donated $12,500 to go towards his legal defense. Now, the state had built their case on two types of evidence. And some of that evidence was what had been found in the cave, which included a pair of eyeglasses, a roll of tape that matched the tape that had been used in the murders, and some pictures that were linked to Hart because he had worked in a photo lab when he was in prison. Now, other evidence was biological, and that included semen and hair that had been found on the girls, along with a footprint that had been found in the mud at the campsite. Now, DNA wouldn't be used for a few more years in these types of cases, so that wasn't an option. Plus, hair evidence discredit was discredited for use as um, like forensic evidence, so police admitted that they didn't have solid proof that Hart had committed the crime. And for the icing on the cake, there was not even any fingerprints that had been left behind at the crime scene. So the defense decided to use this to their advantage, and I mean, really, you can't blame them. And then in doing so, they basically put the prosecution on trial. That footprint in the mud, it wasn't even the same size as Hart's foot. And the items that was found in the cave, well, it just wasn't convincing beyond a reasonable doubt. And then on March the 20th, 1979, the jurors came back with their verdict. And that verdict was not guilty. Now, the family and friends of the victims were stunned, to say the least. And in an effort to comfort them, the prosecution told them that there was no way Hart was going to go free. Because, you know, he was still facing sentences of over 300 years for those previous sexual assault and burglary charges that he had escaped jail from. And I doubt that did very little to console the families, though. I mean, sure, he was looking at spending the rest of his life in prison, but not for the crimes of killing their daughters. But Hart wouldn't spend an amount even close to 300 years, not even 300 days. On June the 4th of that very same year, the families of the victims received the news that Hart had died from an apparent heart attack that he had had while he was working out in prison. And for years, those families thought that that was the end of their nightmare. Well, even after Hart was found not guilty for the murders of the three little girls, police weren't very interested in pursuing the case any further for possible suspects. They still felt at that time that Hart was their man. There was no other suspects in their minds. But still others had to wonder if there was another suspect lurking around, you know, on the loose. Now, I want to go back for a minute to Michelle Hoffman. She had been at the camp in March of 1977 for a special cadet weekend they were having. And while she and the others were away from their tent, someone had came in and ransacked it. Now, Hoffman had brought along with her a box of donuts, and whoever had gone into the tent emptied out the box of donuts, and inside the box, Hoffman found four or five pages from a little tiny notebook with the word kill written on each page, and then on another sheet of paper was a message that said, quote, 
we're on a mission to kill three girls, end quote. Well, Hoffman took those notes to the camp director, but later she found out that several girls at the camp had confessed to writing the notes, and they had been thrown away. This was a fact that was never brought up in the criminal case. So questions remain about whether those girls had actually written those notes or if maybe they had just caved under pressure by the camp director. And the questions also remained of did the killer walk free and did they go on to kill others? Like I said, during the time that the trial took place, DNA wasn't in use. But that evidence, including a pillowcase that had semen on it, had been, you know, that had been found from the campsite, it had been stored. And in 2008, it and some other items were retested. But sadly, police found that it was too degraded to create a DNA profile. Well, a few years later, Mays County Sheriff Reed started reexamining the case. Now, he was just a little boy himself when the murders had taken place, and he never imagined that one day, you know, he would be investigating that case. Well, a year after he started looking into the case, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation got in touch with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And from there, 23 investigators, FBI, the FBI behavioral analysts, and profilers started looking into the case. They made the suggestion that DNA be analyzed again, but that would cost somewhere around $30,000, which was money that the sheriff's office just didn't have. So area residents got together and they raised the money to have the test done again. And finally in 2022, just last year, the families had the answers that they had been looking for. The news was released that the existing DNA evidence strongly suggested Hart's involvement in the case and ruled out every other suspect. To this day, Sheriff Reed is confident that Hart was the one and the only one who could have committed the crime and says that unless something new is brought to light, he will remain confident. Now, how horrible for those families to go all that time and not know who had killed their daughters. And I read that it was nearly 40 years before Denise's mom could bring herself to, to visit Denise's grave again because this intense grief that she continued to feel. I mean, just imagine sending your little girls away to camp and you, you know that they should be safe and, you know, they're going to be watched over by counselors, but then something awful like this happens. I mean, that's just a, a nightmare that never ends for those families. These little girls, you know, they were, none of them were over 10. So, I mean, they were little girls. Now, Lori Farmer was the youngest of the three at just eight years old. And her mom, Sherry, had described her as smart, strong, and loving. And she was the oldest of five children. And her mom recalls that when she would give birth to a new sibling for Lori, Lori would just be so excited, and she became the little mama to all of them. And her father, Dr. Charles Farmer, told the court that Lori was extremely smart, and he gave examples such as like when Lori was 16 months old, she recited the Pledge of Allegiance flawlessly word for word. And then when she was two years old, she completed a 100-piece jigsaw puzzle all on her own. 
she was so intelligent that she was able to skip the second grade after scoring 130 on an IQ test and tested as having a mental age of 10 years old. This camping trip was Lori's first with the Girl Scouts, and she had asked her mom if she could go just before her ninth birthday. Now, this camping trip would be Michelle Guz's second stay at Camp Scott. Michelle was an ath- was just she was athletic, but she was a really shy girl. But she also loved plants, and she loved those plants so much that she made sure they were all taken care of before leaving for this camping trip. And her favorite plant was American or African violets, which also happens to be my favorite because my grandmother always had those. Unfortunately, I don't have my mom, my grandmother's green thumb. Anyway, so Denise, you know, she was the oldest, and she had been excited about attending camp because in the beginning when the plans were being made, several of her friends were supposed to go with her, but at the last minute, they backed out. And that's why Denise wasn't wanting to go that day that Hoffman met her before they got on the bus. Now, like Lori, she was exceptionally bright. And she had been accepted to a school in Tulsa for extremely smart students. Now, in the aftermath of this tragedy, Lori's mom, Sherry, founded the Oklahoma Chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, which is an organization dedicated to providing assistance and support to the families of homicide victims. Michelle's dad, Robert Goose, he helped to establish the Victims' Bill of Rights in Oklahoma, along with the Oklahoma Victims' Compensation Board. Now, Mr. Goose has said that he and his wife felt that they were ignored by law enforcement and prosecutors, and that is why he drafted the bill to create coordinating centers throughout Oklahoma to keep the victims and their families involved in every step of the legal process. And as far as the compensation board, it helps to provide victims and their families with money to help with expenses such as medical bills. And as for Camp Scott, it was sold in the 1980s to a local family, but it remains closed to this day. But it is sometimes visited by ghost hunters and paranormal experts. In 2022, just last year, a Hulu documentary was released named Keeper of the Ashes, and in it, an actress and singer named Kristen Chenoweth, she recalled her connection to the camp. Now, Chenoweth herself was supposed to be the fourth girl in the tent with Lori, Denise, and Michelle, but she got sick just before she was to leave for Camp Scott, and she stayed home. Now, if there's ever a reason to be glad that you're sick, that would be it. Imagine the relief of her parents that they had to have felt once they heard of the murders and realized that Kristen could have been the fourth victim. Well, y'all, that's all I have for tonight's episode of Mystery, Murder, and Mayhem. Y'all have a good night, and be sure to check out the links in the episode description.